Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Welcome to the latest episode of Life Beyond the Numbers. So this week I've put together a compilation and the compilation is largely about mind-body connection as opposed to disconnection. And the reason for that is I recently started a course with an organisation called Coaches Rising and the course is called The Power of Embodied Transformation. And in the first lecture, seminar, class, we had a guy called Richard Strozzi Heckler speak to us. And he is largely seen as the father of somatic teaching. And I was struck by so much of what he said throughout the hour, hour and a half that we had with him. But Right at the beginning, he talked about a character from a James Joyce short story called Mr. Duffy. And Mr. Duffy is described as he lived a short distance from his body, which is a great way of describing how we've lost touch with our feeling, sensing self. While we're rational beings, the capacity to sense or to feel or to trust our intuition or embodied consciousness is, is somewhere in the background. It's, it's buried for many of us. And we've lost that capacity to feel and sense. And when we're unable to feel or sense like that, it can be harder to learn change and transform. There's great wisdom in our body, in our heart, in our gut, in the body. And so in this episode, I went back over many, many other episodes to pick out some snippets about this mind-body connection, this oneness, this wholeness. And It was great to see that there were plenty of discussions around this. So we start off with Steve Haynes, who talks about the mind-body connection and that there is no split. And Steve talks about safety, that sense of safety that we need to feel and the social status with others and interacting with others and how emotions and thoughts and memories help our body make sense of the world. And then we go to Gavin Andrews, who talks about the wisdom of the heart. And he talks about this lovely state of coherence that we are all capable of being in. 
where the heart and brain work together in a lovely state that enables better decision-making for one. Then we hear a very brief snippet from Rebecca who talks about how we have become disconnected from our bodies and how we like to squish our emotions down. And then we go to Lisa who talks about a way of unsquishing, if that's a word, our emotions. And she talks about how we can distract ourselves from our feeling and sensing self and talks about going into the body and how we might do that. And then back to Gavin to talk about, well, how do we bring our emotional self to work, especially for those of us who are sceptical about it? And Steve talks about how to make sense of feelings inside ourselves, how to expand our language around feelings and emotions. And then to really bring this to life in the workplace more, I have a snippet from Matt from the Happiness Index, who talks about how the Happiness Index is an employee engagement platform, but is there to really measure and achieve emotional data at scale. And he talks about emotional data in the workplace as being four dimensional. And from all their data, the greatest thing that they've reported back on is that sense of belonging. And that's a felt sense, that feeling of belonging. And that is what matters most to employees. So we finish with a little snippet from Jenny Ashmore on that sense of belonging and how you might foster it in an organization. Throughout this, there's a theme of feeling safe and about belonging. And these are things that we feel. And you know it when you don't feel safe or you don't feel like you belong. So for organizations to spend time talking about them, I don't know, is that the answer? How do you foster this sense of belonging and this sense of safety? Don't think it's about sitting around talking about it. I think there is actually things that we have to do as people to provide that safe space and that sense of belonging. So have a listen. Hopefully some of these people will trigger some thoughts for you where you might want to learn a little bit more about what they're saying or not. And I will put the full title, episode title and episode number in the show notes as well. I expect you're going to be hearing a little bit more from me on embodiment and and presence over the coming months. And if there's any topic in particular you'd like to hear about when it comes to how to get more in touch with the body or whatever, let me know because I'm open to learning as much as I can as well and sharing that knowledge with you. Enjoy. Descartes is often blamed for the split between mind and body, or he's certainly articulated in a way that really crystallized for people. And it's tied in with religious notions. So there's a mind that might be equated with the soul and it might continue after death and is more than the body. And that's a rich strand in philosophy and in certain religious or spiritual practices. 
and very much minds emerge from bodies. And there's a strand of philosophy of embodied cognition. Our, our minds only exist by interacting with the world. And the medium we do that through is the body. So minds and bodies are never separate. Do you know the Golden Girls, that old TV program? Yeah. Do you remember that one? <laughs> there, was a, there was an episode there where, and it's still a, a theme, where we could cryogenically freeze our brain, uh, be separate from the body. And then at some stage, science will be able to plug into the brain, reconstitute us as a human being. I, I think that's an impossibility, actually. We are so embedded in a body and so dependent on a body and only exist by making sense and engaging with the world around us. The, the biggest decision you're making right now is am I safe or not? So this notion of survival and being accepted by the people around me, not being threatened, I would say we all have our uh, inner guard dog, our sort of threat detection systems that are checking constantly, consciously and unconsciously, is this safe or not? And if it's not safe, we go into defense cascades of fight or flight, so we speed up to survive, or we actually collapse and freeze internally. We withdraw a little bit, feel stuck, and as though we can't. So my experience, realizing that these protective reflexes can be happening unconsciously in the background is absolutely gold dust and really helps people if they know that if I go into my boss's office, I don't just speed up and get anxious, but sometimes I can freeze, I can go numb, I feel as though I can't speak. And that's all founded on your perception of am I safe or not? It's like, is this situation potentially dangerous? And if I'm in the habit or I've been scared in the past or things have happened to me where I felt powerless, some of those circuits might be on a hair trigger and they're really likely to kick in too quickly in the present moments. Our social status and how we interact with other human beings is deeply, deeply important. Most trauma is actually human beings or power structures abusing the power that uh, they have over people. Clearly car accidents and war zones are important, but actually most of us grew up in unsafe environments and that's what triggers most of our defense cascades. So learning that it's life or death when we interact with other people, it's not casual at all, it's fundamental to our survival. And our status and acceptance by the people in our family and our social group and the people we have to work with to survive and work is absolutely in that category is really, really important. Everybody gets triggered and everybody has responses to people who have power or potentially threatening. And then we learn that your boss isn't your dad or your boss isn't the person who, who attacked you and being able to make those differentiations is important and you can respond from the present moment and just learning that heartbeats can be quick for lots and lots of reasons taking a moment to pause to breathe to soften your muscles to prepare yourselves a lot of this stuff is practicing being with intense feelings uh, in safe times and maybe having a guide to help you do that or meditative or yoga practices or qigong or, or lots of ways talking with your friends about this situation really triggers me trying to work that out and then practicing all of that preparation will really help you at that moment when you are about to give your presentation or you are about to go into a difficult situation so really you can negotiate and practice and get better at feeling and you can learn to turn down the volume and be much more skillful in scary situations and get your feelings to work for you rather than against you. 
Yeah, really nice phrase. My version of that was to have a feeling rather than to become a feeling. We're not angry people. We are people who have anger inside of us. And that's a very different statement and also is really much more in line with the current science in that emotions are complex responses to changes in our body. And a definition of emotion is an action plan in our body, a readout of all these things that are changing and trying to adapt or prepare us to engage with the world. But it's always negotiable. We can always construct it differently. And mostly what we do when we have intense feelings is we often predict the worst case scenario and prepare for the worst. So we're very good at catastrophizing. We have a very strong negative bias as human beings that help to survive, but it also makes us a little bit more likely to be stuck in um, anxiety and pain and overwhelming experiences, unfortunately. So my model is that emotions, thoughts, and memory are all complex responses to a body that's engaged in a real world and trying to make sense of that world. We're not really aware of what's going on in our bodies, but there's an element to this, which is about actually connecting with your physical heart, that part of your body. We maybe talk about metaphorical heart a bit later, but yeah, about bodily awareness, interoception that's sometimes called to an awareness of what's going on in, in your body, in our case, particularly the heart. So that's just about learning how to focus on that part of your body. And a lot of people don't. We live in our heads most of the time. In simple terms, coherence is an optimal state you're measuring your ability to put yourself in an optimal state bearing in mind that many of us most of the time are not in an optimal state but we can intentionally put ourselves there so it's an optimal state physically in that what's going on is you're helping your body go into balance i won't go into too much of the science at the moment but you're balancing the autonomic nervous system when you're in this state so it goes into this lovely synchronized pattern which is what we can see reflected in the heart rhythms on the technology so the autonomic nervous system is is synchronized between the sympathetic, the bit that speeds everything up, and the parasympathetic bit that slows everything down. It's working yeah, synergistically and in balance. Now that does some wonderful things. It, it facilitates homeostasis. So you're putting your body in a place where it can you know, renew itself, rebalance itself, self-organize, give you all of the renewal and revitalization that you need, keep you healthy, basically. Okay, so it's, it's doing that physically. And there are also benefits cognitively in that when you practice coherence, the, the brain basically follows. So the heart's the largest rhythm maker in the body. You go into this lovely ordered, stable rhythmic pattern. The impact of that on the brain, in effect, is that the stress centers sort of deactivate and the prefrontal cortex comes back online again. So then when you are coherent, you can be more logical, rational, but you could also be more creative, you can be more empathetic, you can be more of all of those higher cognitive skills that make us human beings and the best versions of ourselves. So that's why you would do it. You're basically learning how to optimize yourself physically and mentally. Humans are systems as well. And as a system, we work best when everything's in balance and working together. So my perspective on things would be that because of the nature of you know our education schooling and society and the world we live in we tend to be very head-based but then that's missing an important part of being human which is the heart bit so we're more about joining heart with head to hearts and brains as opposed to putting the heart in control but having said that Susan yeah I would also say that a decision that's made including the heart is superior to a decision that's made just by the mind the decision that's just made with the heart that could probably get you in trouble as well so yeah we're just looking at basically making sure the system's working in its entirety and then it's optimal yeah it's 
understanding that there is more than your brain that can help mm-hmm. you get through life yeah definitely and and a lot of us tend to like you say use our brains or our heads not realize we're using our heart because i guess the heart must have a say regardless well yeah i mean it's available to us it depends what sort of state we're in physically and mentally and certainly states of stress interfere with the ability to include the heart in decision making but not just stress as in unpleasant feelings and emotions but also you know cognitive load or distraction or just using the brain a lot for the types of things we use our brain for in this day and age which is constantly thinking or working or observing or reading when we're doing that then the heart doesn't really have a chance to to get involved we need to be more intentional i mean this is something that in terms of evolutionary history, we would have been much more used to using information from the whole of our bodies, actually, and paying attention to that. But particularly the heart as a source of information is very powerful. And, you know, ancient traditions have always said that, listen to the heart, etc. But we know now that science is, is validating that. So we know that there's a continuous form of communication between the heart and the brain that the brain is influenced very strongly by the heart and more strongly than the heart is influenced by the brain, actually, that the brain, you know, is firing in time with the the heartbeats. And so if we can get the heart and the physiology into a lovely state of coherence, then the brain will follow that and that will then benefit all of the cognition that's available to us. And so that's how we can end up then making better decisions or having more useful insights into relationships, other people, their behaviors, access intuition whatever intuition is i know people like to argue about it but it's whether you want to argue about the definitions there's a form of information that's available to us when we're in certain states that isn't available to us when we're in other states so we call that intuition we spend a lot of our time in life trying to squish emotions from childhood we're told not to cry don't be silly don't be this and squish 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 down it goes and we've got to behave in a certain way and all this you know toxic positivity around of all this and that that tells us we should feel a certain way so we numb to a lot of other emotions that are going on for us and we disconnect our mind and body from each other there's one guy that um I can't remember his name and I was reading this book and he was saying that I'm using terms mind and body because that's the only vocab we have for it but actually there is no word to describe it but they're just the same thing you can't separate them with words so they're just part of the same energy side of things if we've got that disconnect in there if we haven't like really communicated between them like because over time we squished it down I mean how are we going to spot what we're feeling and then when we don't know what we're feeling we start reacting in ways that we don't really want to react in as well and as a human being we all experience stress trauma whatever you want to call it suffering that is just part of being human and and how we deal with that and and I don't believe we're equipped very well at all to deal with difficulties in life we distract ourselves I can put my hand up keeping myself busy so we can keep ourselves very busy at work we just put everything into that until we until at some point our body will say I can't do this anymore hence burnout exhaustion and it's a body's way of saying you have to stop now you have to stop and you have to listen and you have to take care of yourself and you have to look at what the real issues are here there's this kind of innate thing about humans that we want to be in control we like to think we're in control we like certainty 
We will, and, and COVID has shown us, if nothing else, that life is totally unpredictable and uncertain. And it is moment by moment. The only life, the only thing that we know of is this moment right now. Right now. Past is gone. We don't know what's coming next. No, this is it. This is it, Susan. This is <laughs> what a moment. <laughs> yeah, it's just moment by moment. And, and in that moment, how would it be to just be really open to the experience of it? Because this life, its experiences are pretty awesome and they're not always comfortable. So this is the other thing. We don't like discomfort. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, Lisa. Yeah, I, I like this idea of, you know, just living life in the moment and you know, but, but whoa, what happens when it's difficult? And that kind of takes us back to before when I said about dealing with how do we deal with the suffering that comes up once we actually start to make some space and have some quiet in our life and just stillness, you know? Yeah, so the stillness allows thoughts to surface resurface that emotions word and emotions particularly and then they create discomfort so we go oh no that's too hard I'm going back to the way it was I'll just actually let me distract myself again let me just look at Facebook or something oh that's that's yeah or or reconcile this spreadsheet (laughs) absolutely yes nothing like a good spreadsheet to just take our minds off the woes of the world and immerse ourselves in numbers and things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd like to share, if that's all right with you, Susan, how, what my experience has been of then dealing with that. Because on the face of it, and actually physically, it's not, it doesn't feel easy at first. Because I think I certainly am a person who's not like conflict in the past or like to deal with difficult things. And I think most people would say if there is um, what, what we label as a negative emotion, but it's just an emotion. So things like sadness and grief and anger, loneliness, whatever it may be, all those kind of emotions we tend to shy away from. It doesn't help when we have this keep a stiff upper lip and man up and all this crazy thing not crying why have we got tear ducts and I know we've got them to laugh as well but you know laughing crying similar thing really and um so there's an invitation to be with what is difficult and my personal experience has been that yes it feels difficult and and if you've got somebody to help you with that uh, and I've had some amazing people Kathy Maycarrells who I mentioned earlier whoa and just has been a huge important caring loving influence in my life who was who helped me and she was so patient I can tell you but helped me to be with what feels difficult and the way to do it is not to work it out with the mind so that's what we try and do we go well why am I feeling like this and I shouldn't be feeling like this and you know blah 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 what helps is to go into the body the Body Keeps a Score, it's a great book by Bessel van der Kolk and explains some really great stuff in there. But yeah, yeah. this stuff is, as we talked earlier, is held in the body. So when there's something difficult and a difficult emotion, I invite people, and this is through my own experience, but now in working with others, invite people to feel into the body and to feel, how does that emotion feel in the body? And often, you know, it's usually in the torso area. Yeah, quite often heart, solar plexus, gut, key parts where 
there are key energy centers there as well, actually, and key glands, yeah? And to bring a sense of kind curiosity to the sensations, people can often describe a shape. I'll invite them, is there a shape there? Is it moving? Is it soft, hard? You can just really investigate. And it's amazing what people come up. I always remember one person I'm working with saying, well, I feel like I've got a donut growing in, in my stomach and there's like nettles growing out of it. You know, and <laughs> It's incredible. If we can just really feel into the body. Sometimes some people struggle to feel if there's been some trauma, we have to find ways of working. But that sense of the body is hugely important as a way of, of grounding. I was just thinking then about the, the meeting you were talking about where we can be off in our head and not really present. And one way to be present is to come back to the body. So in fact, people as yourself and if people are listening, just bring your awareness to maybe feet on the floor or the bottom on the seat or just have a sense of you, your body as you're listening and talking. And I feel myself right now, it's just more grounding. So this connection with the body is huge. It's so important. So if we can learn to be with what is difficult again why aren't we taught this in earlier life to be with the discomfort because it's part of life it's here so why not be with it and if you be with it you're able to process it it will shift and you won't get the illness after that for the skeptics perhaps <laughs> or those of us that maybe don't believe in bringing our emotional self to the workplace how do you deal with that well yeah, I mean, I think that's quite common, probably culturally in Britain, but also I'm a man, so I can say it, you know, for, for men as well. We think that we should be in control of our emotions or suppress our emotions or that emotions can get us in trouble and that it's logical, rational brain that we should live our lives by. That's nonsense. We're human beings. We're human beings. And even if we might convince ourselves that we don't have those emotion things and they don't get us into trouble, suppression of emotions is incredibly unhealthy. And all the science shows that. So, yeah, my pushback on that is that that way of thinking is very old fashioned. It leads to poor physical and mental health. We know there's a correlation between emotional suppression and disease, particularly heart disease. And so if you're doing it, you need to stop. But I'd also say that part of being human is, well, not part of being human. Being human is about emotions. We are feeling creatures. Quality of life does not depend upon the size of your house and how wonderful your car is. I'm not saying that those things can't make you happy, but that's the key word. It's the happiness that's the quality of life. And happiness in life does not just come from possessions and extrinsic things or measures. Happiness comes from a wide variety of different sources. And actually happiness is not the one single thing that we should pursue because part of being human is the whole world of emotion and feeling and and all of them are valid my other big strategy is keep feeling keep exploring the flows and movements inside of you keep finding new words for the sensations that bit's really important we're not really taught very well how to make sense of all the feelings inside of us so if you have two choices for how you feel i'm awesome or i'm crappy Basically, that's all you can do. I'm really, really awesome or I'm really, really crappy. If you have 50 shades of awesome and 50 shades of crappy, you've got 100 choices, but it takes practice. Am I angry? Maybe. Maybe you're irritated a little bit. Maybe you're raging. Maybe it's the anger you feel when your partner doesn't respect you. Or maybe it's the anger that's slightly different when you're rushing to work and you shout at someone. 
great, we've now got six types of anger. And if you practice those and differentiate them and learn, my back isn't tight in one or my belly doesn't kick off in another one, all of a sudden we've got a much bigger emotional range. We've got much more flexibility and we can start spotting and just not having black and white choices, fixed hard choices, we have much more nuanced granulation, much more choice, much more creativity, actually, and much more flexibility. But it takes practice yeah. to learn how to feel and to realize feelings aren't a beacon of eternal truth. They're a negotiation. Mm. They're always real because they're a perception inside of you. But it doesn't mean they're accurate, useful or true. They're things that need to be negotiated, but we can reframe them, constructed differently. That might need help and support. And often it does. But first of this realize feelings are incredibly important they're not casual but also that you can get support to frame them work with them differently become really skillful at not doing what you always did when you feel that scary heartbeat or churning stomach or contraction in your back and saying you're getting old or whatever it is <laughs> so i think we're like a modern version of an employee engagement platform but I think ultimately what we're doing is we are giving people data to achieve emotional intelligence at scale. Because if you're the CEO of a hundred person company, I would hope that you have a bit of a feel about how everyone's feeling in that company. And, and I think that's your job. But if you take our biggest client, they have 450,000 employees. There is no way the CEO can run that business and know how all their people feel in by speaking to them. It's physically impossible. So, what we're trying to do um, is use data to understand how people are feeling. So we say that we work in emotional data, which can be hard for people to wrap their heads around. Emotional data, I would say, is four-dimensional compared to a lot of data, which is one-dimensional, sometimes two-dimensional. So even that conversation would be here for years. But at the end of the day, it's data on how people feel. And if you know how people feel, you know that saying, if you can measure it, you can manage it. I used to say that for years and now I hate it. I now, I now say, which is not a snappy and it won't be turned into a book and it won't appear on slides at universities, but it will be, if, if you can measure it, you can better understand it. If you can better understand it, you can make better decisions. And you still might get those decisions wrong, Susan. <laughs> Absolutely, but I'd rather get them wrong than not make any. Yeah, which exactly. is often what happens. And I think some of the unhappiness people will have in a workplace is nobody's making any decisions about anything. What do you mean by four dimensional data? Yeah, dimensional okay. data being four dimensional. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of something that I've been labeled with. And I know that there is a gender split because I know many women have been labeled this before, which is being described as too emotional. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's a very negative label that can be assigned to people. I've definitely been called that, and it's probably why I'm an entrepreneur. I've even got a client that said if I worked for them that he would fire me. But but that's cool. He likes the fact I'm on the outside and I can come in and help. It's brilliant. Oh my I won't God. say who that, what client that is on, on air. So let's pick the interview process, right? And this is what I mean by the four dimensions. So someone sits down in front of you. Let's call them Peter. Peter sits down in front of you. People talk about in first impressions. What we're talking about is our instinctive response to that person. We can't control an instinctive response. There's lots of different varying of percentages, but a lot of what we're thinking and doing is subconscious, right? Peter sits down and is about to be interviewed by one of your guests on this podcast. Let's just, just say they're, they're interviewing to be a HR manager. 
if Peter happens to look like your ex-husband or your brother, your worst enemy, your best friend, someone, or they look like Tom Jones or whatever, there's an emotional response there that then happens. So we've already got two dimensions of data. So if I said to you, one dimension is, what do you think of this person who sat down? You might give me one level of data. Our third point is our rational point, right? Okay, they've done five years in HR, they're CIPD qualified and so on and so on. So we're up to three dimensions now or layers, whatever we want to call them. Our fourth dimension is our reflective response. So they sat down, good first impression, uh, instinctively thought, oh, I'm warm to this. Emotionally, you get over the fact that they look like your ex-husband quickly because your rational brain kicks in. They've got a good CV and you just wait till tomorrow, but you reflected on it, but your gut is saying, mm, just not sure about something here. So that's a, just one example of what's happening in every single event in the day in the workplace. So most technology and most employee engagement has focused on the rational part around what an employee experience is. And again, I mean, this is why the CIA and interrogators, they ask emotional questions because it's harder to lie to an emotional question than it is to a rational question. So there's reasons behind all this, which is built on neuroscience, which is what the happiness index is built on. But that's, that's a long answer to what do we do I mean by the different dimensions? So some people might call them dimensions. Some, some people might call them layers. I just call them uh, better understanding. And as humans, we like to simplify stuff, but it, life's not that simple. And we're animals and we're part of nature and we've got all these senses going on. And, but once we're aware of them, we can start to improve things. Yeah, and awareness is so key. But what happens there, Matt, when your gut is still saying no? Do you listen to it or do, does the rational come back in? How yeah. does that unfold with Peter? So I think it's really important. This is how weird I am, right, Susan? Because I now know from the neuroscience perspective, our subconscious is driving us a lot. I see our subconscious as our DNA, but also our database driven by our experiences. So if we take race as, uh, as an example, let's say you're a white person and in the town that you grew up, you've never met a black person. The first time you meet or interview a black person, you have a view that has been formed in possibly from TV or from the media or so on and so on. So the only thing I think you can do is to gather more experience. And I don't mean experience as in I've gone and worked in this place for 15 years. But the only way that you can do that is get out into your communities and meet more people, talk to people. Like we worked with Parkrun and they were telling me that when they envisaged Parkrun in Belfast, they were basically told that they would have to have a Catholic and a Protestant Parkrun. That's what people thought. And ultimately, I think there's an amazing story on it somewhere, but ultimately they ended up having one Parkrun and guess what? Joggers are joggers. <laughs> And everyone had a great, but Ireland is probably another example of that, where sometimes you just have to get to the other side and meet people and talk. And then you start to get an understanding of people. And because and, and I'm a data guy, that's all data that's feeding your subconscious. So the next time you, because if you've grown up and you've been told that the other side of this, 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 and this, like you're only going to think one thing, like British people were only told as they grew up, the only thing in that you ever see in films is that, that they're fighting German people or Japanese people because it's all World War II films. 
I didn't meet an actual German person other than my German teacher for, until I went traveling when I was 18. So, so I think your gut is important and you should trust your gut, but you should question where is your data coming from and have you got out and is there enough data in your gut? Um, and if there's not, that's cool because you can bring, that's called a second opinion. You can bring someone else in and, and so on. But, and that's, that's where I think all these things like subconscious bias and stuff come on. And, and we need to remember bias can be good because I've got a bias to not eat food that kills me, right? That's that's the evolutionary reason we have bias. But if you bring in that thing that keeps us alive into a world where we're trying to thrive, then that's where that evolutionary thing, survive instinct, is actually becoming a negative if we want to thrive and grow. So again, a long, a long geeky answer to your uh, question, Susan. The the piece I want to share with you from that data is that. The first most important thing you could do is work on the belonging piece in your company. So people talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, which makes it sound like you do diversity, then you do inclusion, then you do belonging. But actually, you should start with the people you've got. Like start with the people that are there. Do they feel like they belong in this organization? I've been inspired by Owen Eastwood's book, which is about belonging. And he talks about his Kiwi heritage and what that means in terms of togetherness and his place, if you like. And having a sense of belonging is very deep. And actually, when in business, we can create that sense for people that they belong in a powerful way. And that sense of kinsmanship, it's very powerful and it takes a lot. And I think businesses often struggle with how do you do that? And, and I think there've been some really clumsy things in the past that are, I think it's where the kind of the drunken office party came from is the lowering of inhibitions with alcohol was a classic way to, to get people to bond, but it's really not very inclusive. Yeah. I mean, there are people who religiously absolutely don't drink. There are people who really don't want to stay late into the evening and don't want the hangover in the morning and all of those things. So I think it's important to work out what are the tools and environments that help people to have those deeper, more vulnerable conversations that create kinsmanship in that powerful way. And obviously, one of the other classic ones is to put people out of their comfort zone physically. Uh, And that's where, if you like, the old outward bound kind of 1980s approach was Again, I'm, I'm not sure that's really the answer. I mean, much as I would be the first to say uh, physicality is massively important and really useful and facing our fears is interesting and hopefully constructive if done in the right way. I'm not sure that's entirely the right one either. So I think finding ways across multiple different contexts to help people open up about things that They probably don't even admit to themselves, let alone want to admit in front of other people, because it is about sharing that vulnerability that actually creates that powerful sense of belonging. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work. And the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider 
leading a review.